Hello and welcome to Health Inequality Insights, the podcast that's all about exploring the critical issues surrounding health inequalities. My name is Dr. Akib Hussain, and in today's episode, we'll be exploring some key themes surrounding drug and substance misuse. Joining us today is Mark Dowdle, who is an outreach team leader at Resolutions, which is a drugs and alcohol service in Luton. Mark has been passionately contributing to this vital role for a number of years and brings a wealth of experience and insight to our discussion. So thank you for being here today, Mark. Thank you, Doctor. It's great to be here. So, Mark, before we go into talking about the current landscape of drug and substance misuse, I was wondering whether you could share with our listeners the journey that led to you to work at Resolutions and what inspired or motivated you to focus specifically on this part of healthcare. Yeah, of course. It's actually quite an interesting journey um, specifically for myself. So I actually ended up working in this sector and specifically in this aspect of healthcare because I actually have a a lived experience of of addiction myself. So, you know, I have an experience of kind of using substances and that becoming quite problematic for myself and struggled for a number of years, going back and forth. And then I was able to finally find and sustain recovery Um, in my, I suppose, in my early, early years, well, early months of being in recovery. You know, I, I just solely focused on, you know, keeping myself well and doing the things that I needed to do to uh, maintain my abstinence. And then I think it was after about nine months of continuous abstinence, I made the decision that I wanted to kind of progress onwards and get back into working and, you know, get into something new. I, for a long time, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to, uh, what I wanted from my career, what I wanted from my life. And initially, I, I wanted to, uh, return to university to study um it was a master's a conversion master's psychology degree and had a my actual intention at that time was to become a clinical psychologist unfortunately that didn't kind of work out and it's actually really much by chance i ended up working for um for resolutions for change go live in luton because at that time my parents were accessing we have a family friends and carer service here so that's all people who support um our service users or have a significant other or a friend or a family member who who that is using kind of substances quite problematically so they were kind of seeking support from our service and um they happened to kind of mention it to uh to the, the family worker at the time who suggested oh why why doesn't he uh why doesn't mark just come and volunteer with us um that wasn't something that I, I guess really kind of crossed my mind and i had an open mind i came down had a chat with them and did my voluntary training initially became a volunteer and then that kind of transitioned i became a I started working part-time and then i transitioned into a, a full-time frontline role in i think it was april 2020 that was when the first lockdown hit and then has transitioned since into um into my my current role which is as you mentioned the outreach team leader so it's uh, been quite an interesting journey <laughs> that's uh, kind of led me to work uh, to work in this this uh, this sector I, I think a lot of people that work in this sector there is a you know usually some kind of underlying reason whether that's a lived experience of, of substance misuse or whether they have a family member or a friend or there, there is usually some kind of reason that people that draws people to work in this in this particular sector but that's the thing that drew me here Wow, that's such a personal story, Mark, and thank you so much for sharing your incredible journey. Um, it's inspiring to hear how you've navigated the challenges, you've found sustained recovery, and then went on to channel that transformed experience into a career to help others. So thank you so much for sharing that with us. It's okay. Um, how how have you found working at Resolutions? Um, yeah, I, I found it very interesting. I've learned 
so much and seen so much and there's been lots of change from the time that I've been here you know I remember coming in as a volunteer and not really knowing very much about I guess frontline drug and alcohol services and safeguarding and all of these different things and over the years that I've been here I've met so many different people interacted with so many people and learned so much and gained so much and I guess my understanding and my knowledge has really grown over that period of time and I've really developed as a as a worker as a person you know developed to my own recovery and I can see the you know, I guess the real substantial changes that I've kind of made and it's uh you know, it feels really yes good to, to to be able to reflect and to look at that and to think about how far I have come and how yeah positive that is and I, I guess drawing back to thinking about you know what initially kind of motivated me you know I think I found it really difficult to to find recovery initially and I think that was such a big motivating factor for me because I was so passionate about my recovery and wanted to be able to I guess support other people to find their own recovery and find their own journey you know and it's been yeah positive I mean of course as with uh, I guess all healthcare and health and social care really it's very very busy and chaotic at times very stressful you know as certainly in our sector there aren't many positive outcomes but you know occasionally you know you will just make that difference for that one person and that is really what makes it worth it you know and just seeing Absolutely. someone make a little change you know and it's yeah so it's been overall I'd say very positive experience yeah I mean thank you Mark it's uh, incredibly insightful to hear about your journey and experience at resolution and I think it's quite clear from what you mentioned that your time at resolution has been one where you've been continuously learning and developing and also undergoing a transformative process yourself how is it that you felt that the landscape has changed over the years I guess at resolutions oh the landscape at resolution I mean there's been I guess lots and lots of change in terms of frontline workers and teams and and particularly with my team it's it's been quite a new development a new change that has been introduced since covid we we're funded through a, some new additional funding that came in after the lockdowns and that's been able to allow us i guess to really reach out and support people that are rough sleeping and people that are at risk of rough sleeping and be able to provide them really kind of assertive support that they need to try and I guess bring them into treatment services I mean the other changes that I've, I guess I've noticed over the years is there there's a, a new drug strategy it's called from harm to hope and with that is attached a, a, a large amount of additional funding which has funded kind of new roles so we have workers that are based in prisons now workers that are based in the court system and um, other workers that are based in probation and, and that is really positive to see in terms of you know we're being able to have a, a greater reach and I can see the amount of people that have come into treatment that are you know seeking support from us is, is increasing which is really uh, really positive really optimistic. Hmm. I think it's really useful to hear about the changes um, especially the dynamic shifts in team post-covid which really highlight I guess you can say the adaptability and responsiveness of the organization to emerging challenges and Mark you talked about the more newer development the drug strategy from harm to hope and how the increase in funding has led to the creation of new roles in prisons and court systems for these patients and I think that's a real positive step forward um, which shows how like these strategic expansions are leading to I guess a more broader and comprehensive outreach and funding is an issue everywhere in healthcare but if we talk about your team I guess the additional funding post lockdown has really helped 
in providing what seems to be a more proactive approach in bringing treatment services to the rough sleepers uh, patient group, which I think is really helpful. Uh, one of the things I'd be interested to know about, Mark, is have there been changes in the local area in terms of substances that have been used, which in turn have led to service changes being made? I mean, in, in kind of, I'd say in community-based treatment services, the demographic of people that we support doesn't change very much. Um, it's usually kind mm -hmm. of people using the same sort of substances that come forward for support. So generally, that the biggest proportion of people that we support in, in Luton, I would suspect that that's uh, reflected nationally as people that use crack cocaine and heroin. The second biggest being people that use alcohol. And then you've also we also support people, I mean, with as smaller numbers but people that come forward for support with powder cocaine use or or cannabis use mm, okay and mark could you share with us about your team and the work you do um you said post-covid there was an increase in funding so there was an expansion in the work you're doing yes yeah, so that was specifically for the around the rough sleeping side of things so there's it's the Funding is actually called the Rough Sleeping Drug and Alcohol Treatment Grant. So that was came out of the lockdowns and came out of COVID. There was a, a government scheme called Everyone In, which is where mm -hmm. they accommodated old people that were rough sleeping on the streets into hotels. And then at that point, I believe they released this additional funding, which allowed us to, I guess, fundamentally change the way we interact and engage with these rough sleepers who have, I guess, I would say previously have been missed because the way we engage with them now is we have um, the team that I manage have very, very small caseloads. They are capped at about 25 service users per worker. And what that allows them to do is to have this flexibility that allows them to go out into the community to look for these people and to engage them assertively and to be really holistic in their approach. You know, I mean, it's, you know, our bread and butter is substance misuse, but we can also support with getting people food parcels. You know, we can support with helping them find accommodation and bringing them to appointments with with healthcare professionals or to the hospital whatever their priority happens to be at that time and it allows us to i guess really try to meet their needs which we weren't able to do previously hmm. okay uh, so how was it like prior to the funding itself prior to the funding we had one outreach worker and their role was as I would say a triage worker, so an initial assessment worker, they would go out into the community mm -hmm. and they would conduct initial assessments with people. Usually these people would be based in hostels or other accommodation services or other places in the community. So they would do this. It's a very, very brief, very quick assessment just to understand what someone's using and which team would be most appropriate. Then they would refer on to, well, not refer on to, they'd allocate out to the most appropriate team in the service to do that ongoing work and then that person would have to come into our main main service to access the support whereas what we do now in the contrast I would say is uh, we bring the service to the client. Right okay so that's a big change. It sounds like the change in the approach to engaging with rough sleepers has been really positive and it's interesting what you mentioned about the smaller caseload and I guess that really allows you to provide individualized and holistic care. Yeah. And uh, teamwork in resolution seems to be crucial to addressing substance misuse effectively. Um, it'd be interesting to know more about the teams that are involved in resolutions itself. And I wonder if you could provide a brief overview of that. Well, there, there's a lot of different teams that are all pay, forward facing, client facing. There's eight teams in total. I can give you a kind of quick rundown of all of the different teams and how they kind of function and operate. So we have our core treatment team, which is the opiate team and the alcohol and non-opiate team. So 
call them the core treatment team. They hold the highest caseloads in the service, so they work with between I'd say 60 to 75 plus people on their caseload. They may manage the main bulk of the people entering our services that don't fit into our more specialist teams. Um, so another team that we have is the single point of contact team. They're, they're responsible for conducting the initial assessment, initial triage assessments and identifying person's primary substance use and then referring, um, allocating out to the most appropriate team. So they pick up all the referrals, contact them, conduct that initial triage and then refer out. Then we've got a primary and secondary care team. So this team is mm -hmm. based in the hospital. So they're based on the general wards and the mental health wards and they work with the hospital to um, gain updates for our clients that are admitted into hospital and to work with the hospital discharge team to ensure that the discharge is managed safely and to kind of update people, update the hospital wards if um, someone is being prescribed methadone in the community and ensure that the transition out um, when they exit hospital that the um, prescriptions are picked up by the community, by our team, our prescribing team when they come out and they are also kind of accept any referrals that the hospital flag up to them that of people that are using substances or may have an admission in relation to substances that are not known to our service and they'll have um, conversations with them they can do initial those initial triage assessments and bring them into structured treatment if that is something the person was interested in or can just have like a brief intervention where they give them a bit of harm minimization advice and just information advice for them to kind of go on their way um, we've also got, so these now moving into our specialist team. So we've got mm -hmm. the criminal justice team. So they work with people that have court mandated orders to engage with our service or other criminal justice arrangements that require multi-agency approach. So we're kind of talking about drug rehabilitation requirements. We're talking about MAPA clients. We're talking about our IOM clients who are integrated offender management clients. They also work with people that are being released from prison. And as I mentioned kind of previously, we've also got a court liaison worker who um, supports with the formation of um, drug rehabilitation requirements and doing that kind of assessment and advising the court whether that is appropriate or not. And they can, they're also very helpful in um, updating us because a lot of the people in my team are kind of in court and they're able to kind of give us updates. We also have a prison in reach worker who works with people that are in custody at present mm. and um, will be kind of re-released into Luton so can start building that relationship with our service to try and uh, ensure that we maintain and engage them engagement with them when they are re-released into the community. Our next specialist team is the young persons team. They work with anybody up to the age of 25 years old, which is really interesting. They have a dedicated uh, young persons hub uh, young person service that's on Castle Street. It's a really beautiful location. It's a really, really trauma-informed space. It's really just sort of calm and soothing. Um, the clients under that team are able to drop into the into the hub. They're also able to attend appointments there, and they do very much the same kind of work as the rest of the uh, adult service. And then the final two teams. So we've got the high intensity team. So this team works with, I'd say, quite possibly some of the most vulnerable and high risk people in our service. They have, again, a very, very small caseload and provide assertive outreach. Um, very, very similar in, to my team. They're, again, also very flexible in their approach. So they also provide a late night clinic. This is for mm -hmm. the sexually exploited females to access support so they can access kind of food there. We also have clothing that we can give to them and we also have access to a rapid prescribing clinic. So if they are kind of using opiates, using heroin and are dependent on those opiates, they can access the cl this clinic to be rapidly assessed and restarted onto their prescription or rapidly assessed and be started on a prescription. 
And then finally, you have my team, which is the rough sleeping team. So we work with people that are rough sleeping, people that are at risk of rough sleeping. We hold, again, as I mentioned, similar to the high density team, a very, very small caseload and provide that similar intensive assertive outreach support. We, again, are very flexible on our approach. And so just in summary, the service encompasses eight dedicated teams. Each have a distinct focus and area of expertise. You have your core treatment team that manages high caseloads and caters to those entering the service. You have your single point of contact team that conducts the initial triage assessment and directs individuals to the most appropriate team. You have your primary and secondary care teams that are stationed in hospitals. Then you have your specialist teams such as the criminal justice team, the young persons team and high intensity team that addresses the unique needs of these patients. And then finally, you have your team, which is the rough sleepers team. Yeah. Am I also right in thinking, Mark, that your team has an outreach clinic available for these patients? Yeah. Just uh, just like the high intensity team, we also have a drop-in clinic. So this one is actually at NOAA, which is a, a, I'd say a key charity in, in supporting the homeless population. Our clinic is on a Tuesday between 12 and 3, and it's people can just kind of drop in. They have access to our outreach nurse. They also have access to our prescriber. We also have a front uh, one of one of a member of my team there as well. So we can in in some circumstances we've actually managed to identify a new rough sleeper. They've presented at the clinic on Tuesday. We've managed to do their initial triage assessment. We've had them assessed by the prescriber and started them on opiate substitute treatment that day, which is actually really amazing in terms of the 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 quickness of the turnaround to get somebody into treatment and to be able to really start supporting them from day one, which is uh, actually really positive. That, that's truly remarkable. Um, that rapid identification initiation of support for new rough sleepers, that's really amazing to hear. And just for our listeners, we talked about in a previous episode what NOAA was. So NOAA stands for New Opportunities and Horizons, it's an organisation that's based in Luton. And we as GPs also provide an outreach clinic there to the homeless population group. Have you found that having the outreach team and the outreach clinic uptake has been greater with patients? I would say there are certainly the people that we work with in my team. I don't, I would say they haven't engaged in the way that they're engaging with our service previously. Um, right. If I look at the patient records, I can see kind of periodically that in and out of treatment they find it very difficult to kind of stabilize and to maintain engagement because the core treatment teams due to the the size of their case they would have to have follow quite a, a rigorous engagement pathway and if someone isn't engaging then we would look to be closing them and discharging them whereas with my team we are more I guess flexible with our approach and give people more chances because we understand that it is very difficult to engage with services because I mean a lot of the people that are rough sleeping have had very, very traumatic lives and have experienced kind of multiple mm. traumas throughout their lives, throughout their childhoods and have, I would say, a, a very large distrust of professionals. Lots of services mm. throughout their lives, I'm speaking quite broadly now, have, have let them down and this breaches trust. And when a new service comes along, it's, you know, it's quite difficult to uh, build that rapport and build that engagement. And it takes a period of time before you can build that trust and the, when you have built the trust and uh, they recognize that you are there to help them to support them then uh, do some really positive work actually I guess really trying to establish what it is that they want to work towards I mean do they want to reduce their substance use do they want to work towards rehab do they want to try work towards controlled use and then working with them to try and achieve that and I guess supporting with any other needs that kind of come up as and when.
in my experience with working with this patient group, uh, engagement can be sometimes very difficult. And I know that's something that resonates with you as well. Are there any other challenges that you've encountered? Oh, it's uh, it can be very difficult to engage this cohort. Um, I guess, like I say, it's it's that that trust, isn't it? You know, it takes a long time to really build up trust with this cohort, and I guess locate them. You know, and mm. th- that can be a challenge. I guess, especially if if these patients have lost trust in the healthcare service prior to this no certainly certainly and and i guess the other challenges that i would that we've faced and that i observe is that when people have very very high dependencies the prioritization of other things in their life is substantially lower so for example prioritization of physical health food of um, accessing support for their mental health you know it becomes Mm. lower and lower on the list and what I do observe and what I do notice is that a lot of these clients I would say are kind of self-neglecting you know that they're not looking after their physical health needs there are multiple clients that we work with that have um, very very severe leg ulcers as a result of injecting into their groin or injecting into their legs and it's they find it very difficult I guess is the the way I'd probably phrase it they find it very difficult to engage with healthcare in order to address that because the the draw and the need to get substances is so high you know and people will Mm. kind of be caught in this entrenched kind of nature of rough sleeping and when they're rough sleeping they're able to raise funds which allows them to fund their habit and like I say, that that takes priority over coming to an appointment to see the prescriber. That takes priority over going to the pharmacy to collect their prescription. It takes priority over, you know, doing things that will help improve their life. And it's really difficult to try and, um, I guess, break people out of that cycle. You know, it's really hard. Yeah. yeah, I think I agree that um, building trust with this cohort can be a significant challenge. And, you know, it's a very delicate process because, as you say, they may have distrust in the healthcare service. Um, I think you summarised it quite well, where you said that the overwhelming draw and need for substance uh, often kind of eclipses the importance of engaging with healthcare. You know, that's often a very tough reality uh, to deal with. When it comes to your own assessment, Mark, how do you navigate the assessment process itself? Oh, I mean, I would say certainly for my team, it is about taking what the service does and adapting it, and being really flexible because. If my team took out a piece of paper or took out their laptops and tried to conduct an assessment in that way, which is how I would say the triage team do it, um, the people, the cohort of people that we work with would find that very difficult. They'd find that very mm. disengaging. So it's about being conversational. You know, it's about being conversational, being aware of the types of information that I need to gather, the types of questions that I need to gather and being I guess open and flexible in the way that I approach that. You know, of course, you want to be empathetic and non-judgmental. These are the, the types of um, skills and, and things that you'd be looking for that, that you'd be looking for in any any setting. But in particular, I guess it's just trying to adapt what we're doing and and being sensitive to how the individual in front of you is presenting. You know, are they engaging with this process? Are they finding it difficult to sit down and being sensitive and saying you know I feel like maybe you know we could do the rest of this another day you know because 
they may find it difficult to sit down for prolonged periods of time and kind of continuously answer questions and you know it's just about trying to get as much as we can out of them and be really collaborative with them to you know work towards this absolutely and i think you're right it can and should be applied in other settings especially during our consultations in primary care um, you know, a formal assessment may not work well with this cohort, so having an open and I guess a more conversational approach uh, would be better suited in some situations. Yeah, and I, I guess really listening to them as well. I mean, I think for a lot of them, they've not felt like services have listened to them. They don't feel heard. They don't feel valued. They don't feel like they are deserving of support perhaps you know I mean it so it must be very difficult and and I guess being sensitive to the fact that I mean it's highly likely and again I'm going to make some broad sweeping statements that that they have experienced severe and enduring trauma throughout their entire life whether that was in childhood whether it's more recent in their adult life and the way that impacts their behaviors you know we need to be sensitive mm -hmm. because that will impact their behaviors they learn people learn coping strategies they learn survival tools and the way you survive on the street is by being aggressive is by shouting is by presenting in a way that keeps you safe and secure and then they will take these survival mechanisms these tools that they've learned that have kept them kept them alive and well and allowed them to do the things they needed to do to keep safe into services like us into gp services into gp practices and that behavior will come out and they will kind of behave in these ways and it isn't because they don't want to engage or because it's because that's what they've learned to keep them safe you know and i guess it's just being conscious and aware of that and trying to um diffuse and to talk calmly and you know and try to understand that there is something that lies behind these behaviors and that you know and, and just be open-minded to that and try to listen and be sensitive and i think that's really what it boils down to i think it's just listening you know and being open to what they have to say and trying to support as best we can mm, definitely we have to work on building that rapport building on that trust that is the in my mind the first uh, first big engagement tool that you need big hurdle you need to overcome once you build trust once people trust you then you can really go you know i'm really worried about you like you know i really think you need to do something about it you know what can we do to support you you know how can i make this easier for you what can i put in place to to allow you to engage with this really useful tips mark thank you so much for sharing when it comes to working with patients with drugs and substance misuse i mean i guess you can't really ignore the emotional toll that this type of work has how have you been able to continue the work that you do without burning out and uh, what advice would you share with other health professionals in kind of, I guess, navigating the emotional aspect of dealing with patients facing drug and substance misuse? Gosh, yes. Burnout is quite possibly, I'd say, one of the biggest risks of working in the sector. I believe um, substance misuse services have one of the highest rates of burnout, actually. Mm. And um, I, I see a lot. There's a lot of people that kind of come in and leave. And, and I guess particularly in our team, because we are exposed to such the clients we work with are so high risk and there's so many i mean it's not just one case of you know multiple unmet needs and complexities in, in relation to kind of serious self-neglect and you know sorts of things and ongoing challenges with mental health so it, it's very it's very stressful it is very stressful and 
you know, in terms of navigating the, the emotional aspect of dealing with all of the things that do go on, you know, for me, it's it's about doing self-care. You know, it's about doing things that support my ongoing well-being. And, you know, and I think we need to, as individuals, think about, you know, how we can go about doing that. So specifically for me, I go to the gym, go to the gym a couple of times a week, actually. I'm a member of Bound Times, which is very fortunately, literally opposite my office, which is great. Mm. So I I go in there and I do a little workout and I can sit in the sauna and the steam room and sit in the pool. And that really, particularly after a really long day, actually helps so much to de-stress. Um, I really, really enjoy camping and hiking. I really lo- I love wild camping. That's something I've just got into, which is where you um, you take a pack with you in a, a, a tent and you just kind of like go up into the hills and, and hike. And then you go find somewhere and set up a camp and, and kind of sleep there and carry on hiking. So I really, uh, really enjoy doing sounds, that. Sounds very, very peaceful. That does. Yes. I, I, yeah, that was something uh, that really helped me. I know when I first um, came into my frontline role um, uh, during lockdown in April 2020, I, I took a trip to uh, the Lake District. I just wanted to get as far away from everyone and everything as possible and just mm. sit in the nature and just um, enjoy the sunset and the sunrise and the trees and the, the wind and the trees and all these sorts of things. And it is really um it's really helpful. Also, I'm also really passionate about cooking. So I really love cooking and, and eating and going out to restaurants. And so all of these things, you know, they, they, they help to support my ongoing, you know, well-being and, and talking to people and talking to my colleagues and venting and, and, you know, just, I guess, seeking support when I need support yeah. and asking for help when Definitely. I need help. And the other thing that is uh, really helpful for me specifically is uh, I don't actually live in Luton. I, I live in Bedford. So it's uh, quite a long drive for me to get back, which um, I specifically find quite helpful. And it allows me to have that physical distance, but that psychological distance from where I work and where the, um, where the stress is and where all of the, the challenges lie. And it allows me to kind of de-stress and decompress. Um, the final thing that I would mention is uh, something that was told to me when I uh, when I first started working in this sector from someone that has been working in well, this sector for a number of years. Um, told, taking, told me that taking regular annual leave was so important. Hmm. He suggested taking annual leave once every three months, you know, which seems I mean, I know when I when I first said it at the time, I thought it sounded like quite a lot. But it has been absolutely invaluable advice to me. You know, I highly encourage, you know, whatever you do, definitely do that. And I guess it's just finding a routine and finding things that work for you and support your own well-being. And specifically, you know, I also really enjoy traveling, have the the luxury of being able to travel and have traveled quite a lot with the, the, the leave that I took last year and visited a number of different countries and, you know, and doing these sorts of things that just, uh, I guess, support your well-being and, and that you enjoy no i definitely agree with you mark um burnout is a significant risk and self-care is absolutely crucial uh, and i want to thank you so much for sharing your expertise and insights on what is such a crucial aspect of healthcare. i mean drugs and substance misuse which is not often talked about enough thank you it's been uh, been great coming here and, and speaking with you Thank you so much, Mark. To all our listeners, that concludes our episode for today. We hope you found this conversation informative and engaging. And uh, before we wrap up, I just want to encourage you all to stay connected with us on Twitter by searching for at National Heft and join our Future NHS page on future.nhs.uk and searching for National Heft, uh, where you can find updates and additional resources. 
And if you do have any questions, suggestions, or if you'd like to contribute to the podcast, then please don't hesitate to reach out to us by emailing nationalheft at googlemail.com. Um, all resources and links mentioned in this podcast will be in the episode description. Thank you for joining us on Health Inequality Insights, and we appreciate your support. And until next time.